Good morning, church. My name is Brett. I'm pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, but especially our guests. Welcome. Glad to have you in our house. Well, Merry Christmas to you. This is the best time of the year for me, not just the day where we celebrate the birth of Christ, but everything that builds up to it. And I'm speaking of our Advent offerings, all the things that we do to accentuate the presence of God in your life and intentionally counteract all the hustle and bustle that comes with the season. So I love it. And I'm trusting that the Lord is going to minister to you throughout this holiday season in a way that it really magnifies his goodness. Um, we're going to continue our series in prayer today and actually end it uh, and jump into our Christmas series. But before I do that, I've got to talk about a less than pleasant scenario, uh, primarily because it's, it's part of the reason that we exist as a people. It's pretty obvious, though, if you hang around here long enough, you get kind of used to it, that we are a very ethnically diverse people, and that's intentional. It didn't just happen that way. Amen. We make every effort to try to be as inviting to different ethnicities as possible, and even going as far as singing folk songs on Sunday morning. That's what we did today, by the yes. way. That arrangement of Joy to the World was folk. Yeah. And it was written by an African-American in our setting, meaning they arranged it intentionally that way. We do everything we do with a purpose because we've decided to not make the, the ethnic majority of our congregation the emphasis in their heritage of what we are in our expression. And so I sit from a stool and preach. I don't preach by hooping. And I don't use my ethnic background in order to accentuate everything that makes me feel better about who I am. We don't have robes. There's a reason we do what we do. And it allows other ethnicities to come in and say, that, that not only was a great service, but I can call that home. I can call it home. Amen. I can call that little black man on stage my pastor. Wow. <laughs> wow, this is really amazing. And that in the state of Virginia. So we're intentional. But our intentionality is more than for the purpose of having a nice look. It's about... It's about saying something and being something. A salt in a corrupt environment and, and light in a dark environment that makes a difference. And my heart just breaks for Ferguson, Missouri. Just breaks. Being an African American, I have some feelings about everything there. But being a Christian, the recipe of my presentation must be salted with what I know God says. And the reconciliation, which is primary in Scripture kind of pulls the reins on my emotions. I'm not saying guilt, innocence, one way or the other. I'm just saying how I feel, how I feel. And I can't let how I feel taint the presentation of the message. I can let it color it, but not taint it. And so there ought to be something in my, my being that is expressed in what I say biblically. 
but I can't let my feelings that some, sometimes aren't as pure as they ought to be bleed through the message and somehow give a mixed message in what I'm trying to communicate. And that needs to be endemic to what we produce, not just what I say. I wish we were in Ferguson today. I wish this congregation could meet right now in Ferguson and do it on Friday night and Saturday night and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and show the world something that would answer the questions before the problems presented themselves. I'm desperate for this to be, to be so epidemic in its orientation, how we build, that it affects every environment, every place, because what we do intentionally isn't just about black and white and Latino and Asian. It's about people. And God wants to see people whole and relationships fixed and cultural divides bridged. God wants help to be given to people that don't know how to find it and communities that are tearing themselves apart for no really good reason because the result of their efforts is not going to produce what they desire. (laughs) See, I can be passionate. I can add me to the message without tainting the message. So I want to pray. I've written a blog. You can look at it on the website or on the Every Nation website. God, help, please. Help Ferguson, oh Lord. Help the pastors there. Help the churches there to be a witness. It's a broken community. And we're asking that you come and bring healing. In the name of Jesus. Everybody say amen. Amen. All right. Turn over to... um, Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, and we're going to end our series on prayer today and start it with the Christmas series. We're going to look at a woman named Anna, Anna. Luke chapter 2, verse 36 through 38. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, And she was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then as a widow to the age of 84. And she never, verse 37, left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. Verse 38, at that very moment she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Lord, help us as we study. Jesus name okay the background to this is that Mary and Joseph had brought their son Jesus to be dedicated it was a requirement of the law that every child needed to be brought before the Lord to be dedicated and it was 33 days after a male child was born that he was to be brought before God and that at the temple so Mary and Joseph are doing that which is customary according to the law and when they, when they come in, they, they see a crowd. Now, I, I am, I'm going beyond what the scriptures actually depict in order to convey to you the reality that is not displayed. Though it might be a little bit extra, I believe it's entirely correct. And that the, the temple was filled with activity every day. People were offering sacrifices. Uh, we know that Jesus came to the temple upon, his, upon the beginning of his ministry. And there were money changers there. There were people that had turtle doves and, and different kinds of wares in order to help people who wanted to sacrifice, sacrifice. Yet these folk were marking up their prices horribly and robbing the people 
making it, making it at a profit above what they should on people's sacrifice. And, and Jesus hated it. So he, he knocked them all out. Um, turned over their tables and, and started literally beating some of the money changers because they were exacting the kind of usury that was inappropriate. It was terrible. And there were people outside that were wanting to pray and couldn't get in. And so things were always happening in the temple. And because there was no prescribed day for kids to be dedicated, but every 33rd day for boys and every 66th day for girls after they were born, in a nation of 4 or 5 million people, there could be hundreds if not thousands of babies born each day. And they all needed to be dedicated at Jerusalem, which meant when the mamas and dads came with their children, their infants, to dedicate them, they had to take a number of standing lives. It was, it, was, it was an assembly line of folks. Next, next, next. The priest would do what he needed to do. And maybe there were five or six of them in line. And everybody would get their baby dedicated. And they make their sacrifice to the Lord. And then they go on about their business. And so this was a routine that happened every day. Every day. Well, the, there was a man there named Simeon. And Simeon was just a guy. He was you. He was the average church member that had a passion for Jesus. He wasn't part of the paid clergy. He was just a man who loved God with all of his heart. But he was told by God that he would not see death until he saw the consolation of Israel, which meant the Messiah. And we know he was advanced in years. We know, we know that. We don't know how old, but advanced in years. And so the older he got, every day he kept waking up, he... He had to say, well, I must be close. <laughs> I must be close because, gosh, I'm not going to live 300 years or nothing. So he got to be around the corner. So every day he woke up with expectancy that he was going to get the privilege of seeing something he had never seen before, nor had anyone. When you come to church, what are you looking for? Are you just trying to get your own needs met, or are you looking for God to do something for his people? It says that he was looking, not for his own consolation, but for the consolation of Israel. What are you looking for when you come to church? Is it all about God? Help me, help me, help me. Having said that, I am grateful that you are coming to church and that you are coming to a place where you can get help. I realize you need help. We want to help you. We love to help you. But at some point, you got to grow beyond what you need and come into what others need. you got to get to the place where maturity is reflected in the fact that you come to church saying, God, do something for us, not just me. Let our church become something that it has yet to become. Help us, oh Lord, to fulfill our destiny and the purpose for which you have placed us on the planet. That's what maturity looks like from the pulpit and from the pew. We're all trying to figure out, God, what are you doing? I want to see you do something here. It says that Simeon was looking for the consolation of Israel. And I just did all my, I did my preparatory work for my sermon next week. Oh, well, you don't mind hearing it twice. But as he was there, in come Mary and Joseph. And they got baby Jesus. Now, remember, it's an assembly line. Hundreds of babies a day being dedicated. And Simeon is looking. And then he sees this baby. 
captures it, his attention. Oh, my goodness. Now, he did not know whether he would see a baby or whether he would see a full-grown man. He didn't know what it would look like for God to reveal to him what the consolation of Israel would be, who the Messiah was. He didn't know if it would be a prophet someday. He had no idea. And so he was just looking. But he had eyes to see. And when he saw, it says he prophesied. And I mean, he just laid it out and told what the baby would be and how it would affect mom and dad. And there are Mary and Joseph. Wow. Now, Mary knew. And here was a confirmation moment. Joseph, on the other hand, was probably looking for confirmation every day. Here's a man who, he took Mary as his bride on faith. He had a dream. Now they were engaged, but then when they were engaged, she was found to be with child, and the baby wasn't his. And of course, who's going to believe any woman that says, I'm pregnant, the baby's God's? Amen. So Joseph is saying, right, right, just, just get on out of my life, please. And then God comes to him in a dream and says, take that girl, make her your wife, and raise that baby. So he does so, and I commend him, because there are a lot of dreams that I have. That, that, that are like bad pizza. I, you know, I, I don't base my entire life on a dream. I do it on the Word. And so he had to reorient his entire life based on when he was unconscious, knowing that he had heard from God. And I commend him for it because he did exactly right. But I know human nature which says, if you got the dream on Monday night, by Friday you're thinking, did I really? Was that... Was, do you think God would tell me, like, that is, this is really important. Shouldn't I have some other confirmation? Or, yeah, okay. And, and, you know, he's going to do what he knows to do because that's what he heard first. So he's going to keep on going. Now, you can imagine the feeling Joseph has when he's, he realizes his wife is about to give birth. And they're in that stable, barn. And uh, he's thinking, okay, the Son of God is about to come out. Well, I bet he's going to fly out of the womb. <laughs> he might even glow in the dark. I'm sure the angels will appear and it'll be a holy moment and we'll know this was God's doing because it's his boy. Now, he, he had to feel pretty bad that he wasn't able to provide a better place for the birthing experience because the Son of God surely should not be born in a stable. And he felt it was his fault because that's what men do. When we don't provide like we think we should, we take it on us and say it's our responsibility. And so he was feeling bad, but he thought maybe God's going to fix this thing by doing some spectacular things anyway. And Mary gives birth, and out comes a baby, and it's just a baby. It's just a baby. You know, he just turns it upside down, lift five toes on each foot, five fingers on each hand. <laughs> Cries like a baby. This ain't nothing but a baby. This ain't God's boy. That's what he's probably thinking. Then he's starting to look at Mary and say, okay, now fess up, girl. <laughs> fess up. Who, 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 who's the daddy? Who is the daddy? Until... As the words were beginning to be formed in his mouth, 
he hears these voices outside the cave. Say, uh, excuse me, anybody in there with a baby? I know it sounds weird, but these angels, we saw them out in the field, and they told us to come to this place. Does, does that sound strange to y'all? They said that there was a Savior born of a virgin right here. Is that you? Joseph to Mary, sorry, never mind. <laughs> Needing confirmation. That was the night of the birth. Now it's been 33 days since. Not a word from God. No word. And all of a sudden, Simeon comes. Let me tell you who this baby is. And again, he's the only one who saw the Christ child. Everybody else saw the Christ child, but they only saw a baby. They didn't see the Son of God. Your eyes have to be sensitized to the right thing to see the right thing. You can come to church and miss God. You can come to church and completely miss it. You can come to church and go out thinking, oh, that little black man was pretty good. And miss God completely. It's not so much that I believe I am his emissary and my words are just like his. I know how flawed I am. That's not the comparison to make. The issue is, can you hear anything of God in what I'm saying? Can you sense anything of God in the worship? Do you, do you realize his presence is here when somebody greeted you at the front door? You can miss it completely. Everybody in church that day, God was present and they missed it except Simeon and this woman named Anna. Anna was an amazing lady. Three things I want to concentrate on. One, it says that she was in the temple day and night. She, she, she almost made it her home. She never left, it says. Which meant she had set herself aside, set herself apart to be used by God. Secondly, she was a servant. And thirdly, she spoke of what she knew. First, she set herself aside. It says that she was married for seven years and then became a widow till the age of 84. Now, we don't know how long she was a widow. But we can surmise, because we understand something about the, the marriage culture of Israel, and indeed most cultures of the ancient world. A man was required, if he wanted to acquire a bride, to give a thing called a bride price. In some cultures, they did it reverse, in that the woman's father was required to give a dowry to the father or the parents of the groom. But in Israel, the man was required to give a bride price to the father of his intended or his fiancée. And that bride price was an amount equivalent to the value of the daughter either to the, the father in that what he could provide, what she could provide for him in her absence and what he had already done to provide for her while she was in his home or set by society in terms of the status of the person that was about to be married. So if a prince wanted to marry a princess from another people group, he might bring, have to bring three, four million dollars to secure her hand in marriage. A man of noble standing to marry another woman of noble standing might have to bring four or five hundred thousand dollars. We know that Jacob wanted to marry Rachel, who happened to be Laban's daughter. 
not Jacob. This is the Jacob of the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this is the one who would become, they changed his name to Israel, and would become the father of the 12 tribes. Wanted to marry Rachel, who happened to be the daughter of Laban, his uncle. Back then, you could marry first cousins. No problem. Well, he didn't have any money because he was on the run. His brother was trying to kill him, and he couldn't stay at home anymore, so he had to get out of Dodge in a hurry. And he wound up at his uncle Laban's. And he said to, 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 to Laban, Rachel looks good to me. She was gorgeous. She was top ten model gorgeous. She was amazing. And, and he said, I want her as my bride. Laban said, great. What you got? I got my hands. I'll give you seven years of labor for her hand in marriage. Now, this gives you some idea as to how much it costs in order to secure a bride. Take your annual salary and multiply it by seven. That's what it costs. So, if you don't make a lot of money, yet you want to marry somebody of significance, you might have to work a really long time to get the resources necessary to acquire what you desire. Are you listening to me? Therefore, it's, it was normal. It was the ordinary thing for a man who may be 40 to 45 to marry a woman who was 16 because it took that long for the man to get the resources and he wanted to marry someone who would give him as many children as possible so he would marry as young as possible. Now today, we see a man who's 55 marrying a 20-year-old, we think, dude, dude. Now, I ain't mad at you. I, I understand what's going on in your brain. I get that. But you are really shallow right now. I mean, you're just, you're just, just not a lot going on in your life. You need help. Back then, it wasn't that way. It was normal because of the economics of marriage. You following me? So what this meant is that it's possible for a man to have been 45, a girl 16, and the girl to be widowed by the, by the time she was 28. Because the average lifespan of a man during the time of Christ was 53. So it's possible that Anna was 16 when she was married and widowed by 23. Which makes all the more phenomenal the fact that she decided by choice, I would rather give myself to God than any other man. What a woman. She became what we would now probably describe as a Hebrew nun. And she just hung around the house of God all the time. She intentionally set herself aside. Now, in order to see Jesus in this environment, meaning during this holiday season, you don't have to, to, to give up everything you got and come and work in the church every day of your life. And that's not what I'm saying. Do not superimpose her, her, her exact description that, is, that we find in Scripture over what you need to do experientially. But we do need to learn this. That all of us have been called by God and we need to set ourselves aside from the world. We don't need to be a part of the world system. We need to recognize that the Lord has done something to put us in a place where we can be above the world system and live at a different level on a regular basis. You want to see God in your circumstances? Then you are going to have to live differently. He's there. But if you don't see him like you should see him, then you will make the mistake that others have made and get the same results they got. Generally speaking, a rebuke from God. Look at the disciples. Jesus said, we're going to the other side. 
They got in the boat. They went on the sea. All of a sudden, a storm came up in Mark chapter 4. Out of the blue, a storm. And this storm was so intense that these seasoned fishermen who lived on the sea were scared to death. I mean, if waves get five feet, I'm a little concerned. But these waves were such that they were bailing and couldn't fix the problem. Water was coming in faster than they could put it out. And the disciples were scared. So scared that they looked at Jesus and said, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, they looked at him and said that because Jesus was asleep while they were working hard. Have you ever been in circumstances? Don't say it now. Have you ever been in circumstances that were so intense that you felt like you were by yourself, but you knew Jesus was there, but he wasn't paying attention? He seemed to be unconscious. The first thing that came out of your mouth in prayer, though you didn't want it to be so, was, Lord, where are you? Lord, do you know what's going on in my life? Where are you, oh God? I need you. Now I don't sense your presence. I know you're looking, but it seems like you're unattentive. The disciples knew Jesus was there. But if you don't seek him like you should in times of calm, then in times of storm, you'll know he's there, but accuse him of being unattentive. You'll accuse him. You'll begin to think that somehow God's off the job. He's not doing what he should be. He's neglectful. And you don't want to be in that position because the next thing that comes is a rebuke from God. Jesus hears them. He recognizes their complaint and accusation. Do you not care? You haven't lifted, you, you haven't gotten a ladle, a bucket. You haven't even cupped your hands to empty out one little bit of water from this boat. Do you not care that we are perishing? He gets up, goes to the bow of the boat. Scripture says this. He says, hush, be still. My version is, shh. The winds become calm. The sea becomes calm. Now, to, to me, there's no such thing as a, a differentiation of the power of a miracle. They're all powerful. But, it, but it's easier for me to understand just naturally how winds can stop because that's what they do. But when a wave stops, see, the only thing that stops a wave is land. It's got to hit something. It says the waves immediately became it. Those waves hit the word of God. Immediately, that word went down like this on the waves. And the sea became immediately calm. The words of Christ are weightier than your circumstances. Now, mercifully, he delivered the disciples. But he looked at him and said, Brett's paraphrase, where'd your faith go? Meaning... He was referring back to what he said when they got in the boat. What he said when he got in the boat was, we're going to the other side. What did the storm have to do with what I said? I said we were going to the other side. What did the storm have to do? Why did your faith just sprout wings and fly away when circumstances came? The disciples had not been seeking the Father's will as they should have during the times of calm, so that in the times of peace, they panicked and began to accuse the Father, if you will, how we speak, accuse Jesus of not being attentive. And if you do not seek him in times of calm, you will accuse him in times of storm. 
This was a woman who set herself aside and said, God, I, I'm yours. And every Christian ought to do this. Every Christian ought to set themselves. If you have not done that, you have not done enough. This is not a pastor's seminar. This is not a moment where I'm speaking to leaders. This is Christianity 101. This is how you ought to be regularly. Lord, use me today. I'm your boy. I'm your girl. Whatever you say I will do, I set myself aside from the world system. I'm not going to be greedy like the world. I'm not going to be selfish like the world. Deliver me from me today, oh God, so that I can serve you best. Help me to be what you called me to be so I can do what you called me to do. That's the way we ought to approach every day. Secondly, it says she served. Day and night with fastings and prayers. Fastings. Is it proper for a pastor to preach on fasting after Thanksgiving? I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure. I, 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 I gained two pounds on Thanksgiving. That day. That day. And I'm, I'm not ashamed of it because I prepared. I lost two pounds two weeks before. Yeah, I went, I went on an intentional diet because I knew what's coming. You only get Thanksgiving once a year. You got to make the most of it. So I intentionally overate on the day because I know I, I got to wait 365 to do it again. The food's just so good. My, my woman can cook. She can cook. She can cook. She Sweet potatoes with marshmallows just with the, the beautiful crown of brown on it. It's just... Oh. <sighs> But fasting is one of those things that allows us the privilege of setting aside that which we believe is not just what we believe, that which is most important to our survival because we need something more. Fasting is not a hunger strike. It's not you saying, I'm not going to eat until you do something, God. It's about saying, I know what I need to survive, but I need you more. And I'm setting that aside because I... I got to have you. And I, I, I want my own soul to know how much it needs you. So I'm, I'm seeking you like this today, O oh Lord. And what happens during the fast is that you become more sensitive in the spirit to what God's doing. Because now your spiritual man is beginning to take precedent over all the, the natural things. And you, you pushed him to the front. And though you might fast for circumstances to change, they may not. But when you fast for circumstances to change inevitably you do even if that doesn't change you do so now you look at the circumstances differently before you went into the fast it was Mount Everest now it's a molehill circumstances haven't changed but you have because you have now begun to see God in the midst of your circumstances which makes your circumstances get small and your God get big are you listening to me and then the Lord can begin to do stuff through you then rather than just beside you Rather than aside from you, he does it through you because you now become different and better. She said she served, it says, with fastings, and she combined her fasting with prayer. Prayer allows you the privilege of beginning to hear from God and see God differently in your, your time of consecration and devotion so that you recognize what he sounds like and what he looks like in the midst of difficult times outside of your consecration and personal intimate devotion. I can't emphasize enough how important this is to recognize the voice of God for yourself.
to be able to see him with your spiritual eyes and know what he is doing in the midst of your circumstances that don't look anything like God's in it. But the only way you can see that is if you recognize and hear and perceive him outside of the storm. Because the storm will dominate your attention. My son played basketball in high school and <clears throat> was at one game and it was half, it would get coming up on halftime, six seconds left. He got the rebound, outlet pass he got, and he was a point guard, came down uh, and, and with two seconds left on the clock, put up a three-pointer, banked it in. We were up by two now rather than down by one going into half. Really cool. Everybody was hollering, screaming, shouting. And uh, I just said from my seat, in this tone of voice, same decibels, boy, you got to call that. Now, for those of you who don't know basketball, that means that that shot was probably luck. That a three-pointer is, is, is given three points because it is, it is more difficult to make than a two-point shot and that you are further away from the basket. And generally speaking, nobody banks in a three-point shot because you have to shoot it stronger. And the, you, the, anything that's banked in, meaning it hits the glass first and then drops into the hole, usually banks way back out because you're using more power to put the ball in the hole. So I said, man, you got to call that. Now, everybody around me who was sitting laughed. He ran down the court, and he shouted back out at me. I did. <laughs> Meaning he said, bank, as he shot it. Now, I was, I was marveling at the fact that he called it. But I was more marveling at, in the fact that, that they heard me. So afterwards, I said, some people hollering and screaming, how'd you hear my voice? He said, Dad, I can pick your voice out of a crowd. Why? Because he'd heard me for 17 years of his life. Amidst the cacophony of sounds in this world, you ought to be able to pick out your daddy's voice because you've heard it so much. And a storm ought not muffle it. This woman was able to see and hear things that other people did not. Simeon was prophesying in the house, and nobody heard what he was saying except Anna, Joseph, and Mary. Everybody could have worshipped, but nobody else did except these four. Why? Well, Joseph and Mary knew something. Obviously, Simeon was talking. What about Anna? Anna had sensitized her ears in times of peace, so that she can pick out the voice of God in the midst of everybody else talking. You want to see God in this holiday season? Start listening. Start perceiving. Because it's going to get busy. It's going to get busy. Lastly, she spoke. It says that she began to thank God. <laughs> Usually we thank God when he's done something for us. Jesus was 33 days old. He ain't done a thing for Anna. And Anna probably wouldn't live long enough to see him do anything of note. Why was she worshiping? Because of who he was. Why do you worship? Oh, anybody can worship when Publishers Clearinghouse comes to your house. That's a moment to shout, isn't it? Do you shout when, when somebody's about to turn off your electricity? 
Yeah, you probably do. I'm sorry. <laughs> you probably do. You probably do. It's the wrong kind of shouting, though. Do you praise him when things are difficult? Do you honor him when nothing has been done for you lately? Somehow or another, we forget that he made the greatest sacrifice on our behalf by sending his son. Our mind's amnesia just begins to kick in when we don't experience him doing his latest and greatest for us. And we just put in the background everything he's already done and begin to accuse him of being unattentive in our situation now. Shame on us. Thank him for who he is and don't wait for the next thing that he does. Anna began to thank God. Woo! Thank God for your sending your son, O oh Lord. Secondly, it says she began to speak to everybody else she could find. <laughs> hey, the Messiah's here. Hey, hey, come over here. Look at this baby. This baby is something. Yeah, come over here. Nobody would listen to her. She tried to talk. Listen, how many people do you talk about? Excuse me. Don't do that. <laughs> how many people do you talk to about your God? See, when you, this wasn't scripted. It's not one of those, okay, Anna, you will go into the house today, you will see the Christ child, and then you will talk to everybody about him. It just came out of her. She had a tendency to talk about what God was doing. What are your tendencies? Well, Pastor, if I talk to somebody, it might really strain the relationship. And you know this religion thing, that's kind of controversial, and everybody's got their own ideas, and I don't want to do anything to upset the apple cart. And it can be, you know, good. Excellent, because somebody needs to know exactly where you stand. I'm not talking about being obnoxious. I'm just talking about loving folk with the love of God. Somebody needs to know that Jesus loves them through you. And they need to know how much you love him. Make your relationships get on a line. Draw something that defines it better than you just being a compatible friend. Honor God in your friendships and talk to people. And don't be selfish with the revelation he's given you about who he is. Share it with somebody. Please let this holiday season be that which you share something about who Jesus is with somebody. Let's pray. Daddy, I love you. I thank you for your goodness and grace. You're amazing to us. You treat us better than we deserve. I'm asking that you would help us in this holiday season to honor you and to love you, to serve you well, and to magnify your presence in our midst.